It's an exciting time for the capabilities of Python. We have the faster CPython initiative going strong, the recent async work, the adoption of typing, and on this episode, we discuss a new isolation and parallelization capability coming to Python through sub-interpreters. We have Eric Snow, who spearheaded the work to get them added to Python 3.12 and is working on the Python API for them in 3.11, along with Anthony Shaw, who's been pushing the boundaries of what you can already do with sub-interpreters. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 446, recorded December 5th, 2023. <music> Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by PyBytes Developer Mindset Program. PyBytes' core mission is to help you break the vicious cycle of tutorial paralysis through developing real-world applications. The PyBytes Developer Mindset Program will help you build the confidence you need to become a highly effective developer. And it's brought to you by Sentry. Don't let those errors go unnoticed. Use Sentry. Get started at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. Anthony, Eric, hello, and welcome to TalkPython. Right. Hey guys, it's really good to have you both here. You both have been on the show before, which is awesome. And Eric, we've talked about sub-interpreters before, but they were kind of a dream almost at the time. That's right. And now, now they feel pretty real. That's right. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. And uh, I think the last time we talked, you know, I, I've always been hopeful, but it seemed like it was getting closer. So with 312, we were able to land uh, per interpreter Gill, which kind of was the last piece the, the foundational part I wanted to do. A lot of cleanup, a lot of work that had to get done, but that last piece got in for 312. Excellent. Excellent. So good. And you know, maybe let's just do a, a quick check-in with you all. It's It's been a while. You know, Anthony, start start with you, I guess. Quick intro for people who don't know you, although I don't know how that's possible. And then uh, just what you've been up to. Uh, yeah, I'm Anthony Shaw. I work at Microsoft to lead the Python advocacy team. And I do lots of Python stuff, open source, um, testing things, building tools, um, blogging, building projects, sharing things. You have a book, something about the inside oh, yeah, I have of a Python. Book as well. Yeah, I forget about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a book called C Python Internals, which is a book about all about the Python compiler and how it works. And have you suppress the memory of writing it, like it was too traumatic. It just it's down there. Yeah, in the subconscious. <laughs> <I keep> forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that book was for 3.9, and people keep asking me if I'm going to update it for 3.13, maybe, uh, because mm. things keep changing. Yeah. Um, things are definitely changing at a more rapid pace than they were a few years ago as well, so that maybe makes it more challenging. Uh, yeah, recently, um, I've been doing some more research as well. So I just finished my master's um, a few months ago, and I started my PhD, and I'm looking at parallelism in Python as one of the topics. So I've been quite involved in sub-interpreters and the uh, free-threading project and some other stuff as well. Awesome. Congratulations on the master's degree. That's really great. Thanks. And I uh, didn't realize you were going further. So Eric. Uh, Eric Snow. So I've been 
working on Python as a core developer for oh, uh, over 10 years now, but I've been kind of participating for even longer than that. And it's it's been good. I, I've, I've worked on a, a variety of things, a lot of stuff down in the, the core runtime of CPython. And uh, I've been working on this, trying to find a solution for multi-core Python since really since 2014. Yeah. So I've been slowly, ever so slowly working towards kind of that goal and we've made it with 312 and there's more work to do, but that's kind of the, a lot of the stuff that I've been working on. I, I'm at Microsoft, but don't work with Anthony a whole lot. Um, I work on the Python performance team with Guido and uh, Brant Booger and Mark Shannon, Eric Cutrell, and um, we're just working generally to make Python faster. So my part of that has involved sub-interpreters. Awesome. But interestingly enough, uh, I it's only really this year that I've been able to work on all the sub-interpreter stuff full-time. Before that, I was working on mostly on other stuff. So it's kind of a, this year's been a good year for me. Yeah, I would say that must be really exciting to get the like, you know what, why don't you just keep, just do that. That'd be awesome for us. Yeah, it's, it's been awesome. Well, maybe uh, since you're on the team, it's a, a quick check-in on faster CPython. It's made a mega difference over the last couple of releases. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Mark Shannon has a, definitely has a vision. He's, he's developed a plan as of like years ago, but we finally were able to get him, uh, put him in a, a position where he could do something about it. And, and we've all been kind of pitching in. Uh, a lot of it has to do with just applying some of the general ideas that are out there regarding dynamic languages and optimization. Yeah. Things have been applied to other things like uh, HHVM or, or various of the JavaScript runtimes. And uh, so a lot of specialization, uh, adaptive specialization, um, uh, a few other techniques. But right now, so and a lot of that stuff we're able to get in for three, uh, three eleven in three twelve. There wasn't quite as much impactful stuff. It was we're kind of gearing up to effectively add a JIT into C Python, and that's required a, a lot of kind of behind the scenes work to get things in the right places. Mm-hmm. So we're somewhat targeting 3.13 for that. So uh, right now, um, I think with where things are at, it, we're kind of break even performance wise, but there's a lot of stuff that we can do. Um, a lot of optimization work that really hasn't even been done yet that'll take that performance improvement up pretty drastically. Uh, it's kind of hard to say where we're going to be, but for 3.13, it's looking pretty good for uh, at least a some performance improvement because of the, the jitting and optimization work. That's that's exciting. Yeah, we have no real jit at the moment, right? Uh, not in CPython. Yeah. I mean, I know there's Numba and, and, Anthony, and yeah, different things. Yeah. Best. <laughs> I know. Well, that's actually super exciting because I feel like that could be another big boost potentially, you know, with the jit. You come to all sorts of things like inlining of small methods and, and mm-hmm. optimization based on type information and yeah. Yep. All that stuff. One of the most exciting parts for me is that a lot of this work, uh, not long after I joined the team, so what, two, two years ago, two and a half years ago, somewhere in there, pretty early on, we started uh, reaching out to other folks, other projects that were interested in performance mm-hmm. and performance of, of Python code. And um, we've worked pretty hard to collaborate with them. So like the, the team over at Meta, uh, they have a uh, lot of interest in making sure Python is very efficient. And uh, 
So we've actually worked pretty closely with them and they're able to take advantage of a lot of the work that we've done, which is great. Yeah, there seems to be some synergy between the Cinder team and the faster CPython team. So awesome. But let's focus on a part that is there, but not really utilized very much yet, which is the sub interpreter. So back on, when is this, 2019? Eric, I had you on. We talked about can sub interpreters free us from Python's gill? And then since then, this uh, HEP has been accepted, but it's Anthony's fault that we're here. Because <laughs> Anthony posted over on Mastodon, hey, here's a new blog post, me running Python parallel applications with sub-interpreters. How about we use Flask and Fast API and sub-interpreters and make that go fast? And that sounded more available in the Python level than I kind of realized the sub-interpreter stuff was. So that's that's super exciting, both of you. Yeah, it's been fun to play with it and try and build applications on it and stuff like that. Um, and working with Eric probably over the last couple of months on things that we've discovered in that process. <laughs> um, especially with C uh, extensions. Daytime? daytime? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, yeah, that's one. Um, with C extensions. And I think that those, some of those challenges are going to be um, the same with free threading as well. So it's how C extensions have state, where they put it, um, whether that's mm -hmm. thread safe. Um, and as soon as you kind of open up the possibility of having multiple gills in one process, then um, what challenges does that uh, yeah, create? Absolutely. Well, I guess maybe some nomenclature first. Not no gill Python or subinterpreter Python. Free threaded. Is that what we're calling it? What, what's the name? How do we how do we speak about this? It's, it's not quite settled, but I think a lot of people have taken to referring to it as free threaded. Oh, I can go with that. I mean, that sounds pretty people good. People still talk about no gill, but it's free thread. It's probably the yeah. best bet. Are Are you describing what it does and why you care, or are you describing the implementation? Right, like the implementation is it has no gill, so it can be free threaded, or it has sub interpreters, so it can be free threaded. But really, what you want is the free threaded part. You don't care actually about the gill too much, right? Uh, kind of. Well, it, it's interesting with sub interpreters. It really isn't uh, necessarily a free threaded model. It, it's it's kind of uh, free-threaded only in the part at which you're like uh, moving between interpreters. So right, right, you only right. have to care about it when you're interacting between interpreters. The rest of the time, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, where with the the no gill is more kind of the what we think of as free free threading, where everything right. is is right, unsafe. Right. And for people who don't know, the no gill stuff is what's coming out of the Cinder team and from Sam Gross, and that was also approved, but with the biggest caveat I've ever seen on an approved pep. Yeah. Like, we approve this, we also reserve the right to completely undo it and not approve it anymore. <laughs> but fair. Yeah. And it's also a compiler flag that is an optional off-by-default situation. So um should be interesting. Yeah, we can maybe yeah, compare that... and contrast them a bit, a bit later as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start with what are what is in a sub what is an interpreter? So then how do we get to sub-interpreters? And then like what work did you have to do? I heard there was a few global variables that were being shared, mm -hmm. Eric. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe let's give people a quick rundown of like what is this and how is it this new feature in three twelve changing things? Yeah, subinterpreters uh, in a Python process when you run Python, all of everything that happens, all the the machinery that's running your Python code is running with a certain amount of global state. And and historically, you can think of it as you know across the whole process, you've got a bunch of global state. You've if you th look at all the stuff like in the sys module, sys.modules or sys.whatever, 
you know, all those things are shared across the whole the whole runtime. So if you have different threads, for instance, running, they all share that stuff, even though you're going to have different code running in each thread. So all of that runtime state is uh, is everything that Python needs in order to run. But what's interesting is that the vast majority of it you can um, think of as the actual interpreter. And so that state, if we treat it as isolated and we're very careful about it, then we can have multiple of them. That means that when your Python code runs, that it can run with a different set of this global state, different modules imported, different uh, things going on, different threads that are unrelated and really don't affect each other at all. And then um, with that in mind, you can take it one step farther and say, well, let's completely isolate those and like not even have them share a gill, right? And then at that point, that's where the magic kind of happens. So that's kind of the my uh, first goal in this whole project was to get to that point. Because once you get there, then uh, it opens up a, a lot of possibilities when it comes to concurrency and, and parallelism. Yeah. Then Anthony can start running with his blog posts and showing off yeah. cool things. Yeah, absolutely. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by the PyBytes Python Developer Mindset Program. It's run by my two friends and frequent guests, Bob Belderbos and Julian Sequira. And instead of me telling you about it, let's hear them describe their program. In a world where AI, machine learning, and large language models are revolutionizing how we live and work, Python stands at the forefront. Don't get left behind in this technological evolution. Tutorial paralysis, that's a thing of the past. With PyBytes Coaching, you move beyond endless tutorials to become an efficient, skilled Python developer. We focus on practical, real-world skills that prepare you for the future of tech. Join us at PyBytes and step into a world where Python isn't just a language, but a key to unlocking endless possibilities in the tech landscape. Check out our 12-week PDM program and embark on a journey to Python mastery. The future is Python, and with PyBytes, you're one step ahead. Apply for the Python Developer Mindset today. It's quick and free to apply. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thanks to PyBytes for sponsoring the show. One thing I don't know the answer to, but might be interesting, is Python has a memory management story in front of the operating system virtual memory that's assigned to the process with yeah. pools, arenas, um, blocks, those kinds of things. What's that look like with regard to sub-interpreters? Does sub, each sub-interpreter have its own chunk or set of those for the memory it allocates, or is it still a shared one thing per process? Uh, it's it's per interpreter. This is something that was very global. And, and, and like you pointed out earlier, this whole project was all about taking all sorts of of global state that was actually stored in like C global variables all over the place, right? And pulling those in together into one place and and moving those down from from kind of the, the process global state down into each interpreter. Yeah. So one of those things was all of the, the uh, allocator state that we have for objects. And Python kind of has this idea of different levels of allocators. The object allocator is what's used heavily for Python objects, of course, but some other state as well. And the object allocator is uh, is the part that has all the arenas and everything, like you were saying. Yeah. So, so part of what I did before we could make the gil per interpreter, we had to make the 
allocator state per interpreter. Well, the reason I think that it's interesting asking about it, it's one, because of the gill, obviously, but the other one is, it seems to me like these sub-interpreters could be used for a little bit of stability or isolation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to run some kind of code, and when that line exits, I want the memory freed, I want modules mm-hmm. unloaded, I want it to go back to the way it was. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas normally in Python, even if the memory becomes free, right, it's still got some of that, like, well, we allocate the stuff, now we're holding it to refill it, and then, you know, you don't unimport modules, and the modules can be pretty intense, actually, yeah. if, you know, if they start allocating a bunch of stuff themselves and so on. What do you guys think about this as an idea, as an aspect of it? Yeah, there's one example um, I've been coming across recently, and this is a, uh, is a pattern. I think it's a bit of an anti-pattern, actually, but um, some Python packages... Uh, they store like some state information in the module level. So yeah. um, an example is a SDK that I've been working with, which has just been rewritten um, to stop it from doing this. But um, you would put the API key of the SDK, you would import it. So you'd import X and then do like X dot API key equals. Um, so it basically stores yeah. the API key in the module object, um, which is fine if you've got you've imported the module once and you're using it once um yeah but what you see is that um if you put that in a web application it just assumes that everyone uses the same key so you know you can't have you can't import that module and then connect to it with different api keys like you'd have different users or something right so you had some kind of multi-tenancy right where like they would say, you know, enter their chat GPT open AI key, and then they could work on behalf of that, right? That potentially something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of like an API example, but there are other examples where let's say you're loading data or something and it's and it stores some temporary information somewhere in like a class attribute or even like a module attribute like that, then um if you've got one piece of code loading data and then in an, in another thread in a web app or just in another thread generally you're reading another piece of data and they're sharing state somehow and you've got no isolation some of that is due to the the way that people have written the python code or the extension code um has kind of been built around oh we'll just put this information here and they haven't really thought about the isolation sometimes it's because on the c level especially that because the gill was always there they've never had to worry about it so you know that's you could just have a counter for example or there's an object which is a dictionary that is a cache of something um and you just put that uh, as a static variable um and you just read and write from it you've never had to worry about thread safety because the gill was there to kind of protect you you probably shouldn't have built it that way but it didn't really matter because yeah. it worked um, well, what about this, Anthony? What if we can if we can write it on one line, it'll probably be safe, right? If we can fit it just one yeah. line of Python code, it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah Dictionary.add. Exactly. What's wrong there? Dictionary.get. It's fine. Yeah. So yeah, what we're saying with, within sub interpreters, I think what's the the concept that people will need to kind of understand is where the where the isolation is, um, because there are different models for running parallel code and. At the moment, we've got coroutines, um, which is asynchronous, so it can run concurrently. So that's if you do a sync and await, or if you use the old uh, coroutine decorator. Um, you've also got things like generators, which are kind of like a concurrent pattern. Um, you've got threads that you can create. Um, all of those 
live within the same interpreter and they share the same information. So you don't have to, if you create a thread in, inside that thread, you can read a variable from outside of that thread um, and it doesn't complain. Um, you don't need to create a lock at the moment, um, although in some situations you probably should. Um, and you don't need to re-import modules and stuff like that, which, yeah. which can be fine. And then at the other extreme, you've got multiprocessing, which is a module in the standard library that allows you to create extra Python processes and then kind of gives you like an API to talk to them and share information between them. And that's kind of like the app, the other extreme, which is you've got on it is the, you know, the ultimate level of isolation. You've got a whole separate Python process. Um, but instead of interacting with it via the command line, you've kind of got this nicer API where you can almost treat it like it's in the same process as the one you're running from. Yeah, um, it's kind so of magical like, actually that that at all work, you get a return value from a process, for example, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing is, if you peel back the covers a little bit, then like how it sends information to that other Python process involves a lot of pickles um, yeah. and it's not particularly efficient. And also a Python process has a lot of extra stuff that you maybe necessarily didn't even need. Like you get all this isolation from having it, but you have to import all the modules again. You have to create the arenas again, or the memory allocation. You have to do all the startup process again, which takes a lot yeah. of time. It's like at least two hundred milliseconds. the Python code again, right? At least the PYC. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So you basically created like a whole separate Python, um, and if you do that just to run a small chunk of code, um, then it's not probably the best model at all. Yeah, you have a nice graph as well. That shows like sort of the, the rate as you add more work and you need more parallelism. We'll get to that, I'm, I'm sure. Um, you know, one thing that struck me coming to Python from other languages like C, C++, C Sharp, there's very little locks and events threading, coordinating stuff in Python. And I think that there's probably a ton of Python code that actually is not actually thread safe, but people kind of get away with it because the context switching is so coarse grained, right? Like you say, well, the gills there, so you only run one instruction at a time, but like this temporary invalid state you enter to as part of like just your code running, like took money out of this account and then I'm going to put it into that account. Right? Those are multiple Python lines and there's nothing saying they couldn't get interrupted between one to the other and then things are busted, right? I feel there's there's some concern about adding this concurrency, like, oh, we're having to worry about it. Like, you probably should be worrying about it now. Not as much necessarily, but it's, I, I feel like people are getting away with it because it's so rare, but it's not, it's a non-zero possibility. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, those are real concerns. Uh, it's as, there's been lots of discussion with the no-go work about really what what matters, what, what we need to care about really what impact it's going to have and i mean it's uh, it's probably going to have some impact on people with python code but it'll especially have impact on people that maintain extension modules yeah but it really is all the the pain that comes with free threading you know it, that's that's what it it introduces with you know the the benefits as well of course um but what's interesting i'd like to think of uh Subinterpreters kind of provide the same facility, but they force you to be explicit about what gets shared, and they force you to do it in a thread-safe way. So yeah. it's you can't do it without thread safety, and so it's not an issue. And it doesn't hurt that um, people really haven't used uh, subinterpreters extensively 
up till now, whereas threads are kind of something that's been around for quite a while. Yeah, it has been. And well, it's subinterpreters have traditionally just been a thing you can do from C extensions or the C API, which really limits them from being used in just a standard, like I'm, I'm working on my web app, so let's just throw in a couple of subinterpreters, you know? Yep. But in 3.13, is that when yep. we're looking at having a, a Python level API for creating, interacting with? Yeah, I, I've been working on a, a PEP for that, PEP 554. I recently um, created a new PEP to replace that one, which is PEP 734. That's the one. So that's the one that I'm targeting for 3.13. And uh, anyway, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Create interpreters and um, kind of look at them and with an interpreter, run some code, uh, you know, pretty basic stuff. And then also because subinterpreters aren't quite so useful if you can't cooperate between them. Uh, there's also a queue type that, you know, you push stuff on and you pop stuff off and just pretty basic. So, so you could write something like, oh, wait, queue.pop or, or something like that. Uh, excellent. Yeah, so... Yeah, this is really cool. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about here, um, looks like you already have it in the pep, which is excellent. Somehow I missed that before, is that there's an... We have thread pool executors. We have multi-processing pool executors, and this would be an interpreter pool executor. Mm -hmm. What's the thinking there? People are already familiar with using concurrent futures. So if we can present the same API for sub-interpreters, it makes it really easy because you can set it up with multi-processing or, or threads and switch it over to one of the other pool types without a lot of fuss. Right. Basically, with a clever import statement, you're good to go, uh -huh. right? From yep. whatever import, like multi-processing pool executor as pool executor or interpreter pool executor as pool executor, and then the rest of the code could stay potentially. Yeah. What I, I expect about the, the communication, like you gotta, it's gotta kind of be a basic situation, yep. right? Because there are assumptions. Yep. Yeah, and, and it should it should work mostly the same way that you already use it with uh, threads and multi-processing. But yep. we'll see. There's some some limitations with subinterpreters currently that. I'm, I'm sure we'll work on solving as, as we can, but, um, so I, we'll see it. It may not be quite as efficient as I'd like at first with the interpreter pool executor, because we'll probably end up doing some pickling stuff, kind of like multiprocessing does, yeah. although I expect it'll so, be a little more efficient. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Sentry. You know Sentry for the air monitoring service, the one that we use right here at Talk Python. But this time I want to tell you about a new and free workshop he mean the Kraken, managing a Python monorepo with Sentry. Join Salma Alam Nayor, senior developer advocate at Sentry, and David Winterbottom, head of engineering at Kraken Technologies, for an inside look into how he and his team develop, deploy, and maintain a rapidly evolving Python monorepo with over 4 million lines of code that powers the Kraken utility platform. In this workshop, David will share how his department of 500 developers who deploy around 200 times a day, use Sentry to reduce noise, prioritize issues, and maintain code quality without relying on a dedicated Q&A team. You'll learn how to find and fix root causes of crashes, ways to prioritize the most urgent crashes and errors, and tips to streamline your workflow. Join them for free on Tuesday, February 27th, 2024 at 2 a.m. Pacific time. Just visit talkpython.fm slash sentry dash monorepo. That link is in your podcast player show notes. 2 a.m. might be a little early here in the U.S., but go ahead and sign up anyway if you're a U.S. listener, because I'm sure they'll email you about a follow-up recording as well. 
Thank you to Century for supporting this episode. I was going to I was going to save this for later, but I think maybe it's worth talking about now. So, first of all, Anthony, you wrote a lot about and have actually had some recent influence on what you can pass across say the starting code and then the running interpreter that's kind of like the subinterpreter doing extra work. Want to talk mm-hmm. about like what data exchange there is? Yeah, so um when you're using any of these models, multi-processing um, sub-interpreters or threading, um, I guess you've got two, th- three things to worry about. One is how do you create it in the first place? So how do you create a process? Um, how do you create an interpreter? How do you create a thread? Uh, the second thing is well, how do you send data to it? Because normally the reason you've created them is because you need it to do some work. Um, so you've got the code, which is you know when you spawn it, when you create it the code that you want it to run but that code needs some sort of input and that's probably going to be python objects um it might be reading files for example or listening to a network socket so it might be getting the its input from somewhere else but typically you need to give it parameters um now the way that works in multiprocessing is is mostly reliant on pickle so um if you start a process and you give it some data, either as a parameter or you create a, a queue um, and you send data down the queue or the, or the pipe, for example, um, it pickles the data. So you can put a Python object in, it uses the pickle module, it converts that into a byte string, and then it um, basically converts the byte string on the other end back into objects. Um, that's got its limitations because not everything can be pickled. Um, and also some objects, especially if you've got a, like a an object which has got objects in it and, you know, it's deeply nested or you've got a big complicated dictionary or something that's got all these strange types in it, which can't necessarily be rehydrated from just from a byte string. Um, uh, an alternative, actually, I do want to point out because um, for people who come across this issue quite a lot, there's another package called Dill on PyPI. Um, so if you think of packet, uh, Pickle, uh, think of Dill. Um, Dill is very similar to Pickle. It has the same interface, um, but it can pickle slightly more exotic objects than Pickle can. Um, so often if you find that you've tried to pickle something, you try to share it with a process or a sub-interpreter, and it comes back and says, this, this can't be pickled, um, you can try Dill and see if that see if that works. Um, so yeah, that's the typical way of doing it is that you would you'd pickle an object and then on the other end you would basically unpickle it back into another object. Um the downside of that is that it's pretty slow. It's equivalent um like if you use the JSON module in, in Python, it's kind of similar, I guess, to converting something into JSON and then converting it from JSON back into a dictionary on the other end. Um like it's not a super efficient um way of doing it. So Subinterpreters have another mechanism, and I haven't read PEP seven three four yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know how much of this is in the new PEP, Eric, or if it's in the queue. Um, but there's a it's there's a much the same. Okay, it's much the same. So there's another mechanism with subinterpreters um, because they share the same process, um, whereas multiprocessing doesn't. They're separate processes because they share the same process. You can basically put some data in a in a memory space which can be read from a separate interpreter um now you need to be well python needs to be really careful you don't need to worry too much about it um because that complexity is done done for you but there are certain types of objects that you can put in as parameters you can send either as startup variables for your sub interpreter or you can send via like a 
a pipe basically backwards and forwards between the interpreters um, and these are essentially all the immutable types for python um, which is um, like string unicode strings byte strings um, bool none integer float and tuples um, and you can do tuples of tuples as well and uh it seems like the tuple part had to uh, something that you added recently, right? It says I implemented tuple sharing just last week. Yeah, that was that's in now. Um, I really wanted to, to use it, so <laughs> I thought, well, instead <laughs> of keep, I kept complaining that it wasn't there. So I thought instead of complaining, I might as well um, talk to Eric and work out how to implement it. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Hey, but yeah, you can't share that, dictionaries. That's one. Yeah, exactly. So thing, one thing that I thought that might be awesome. Are you familiar with message spec? You guys seen message spec? It's like Pydantic in the sense that you create a class with types, but the the parsing performance is quite a bit, like much, much faster. 80 times faster than Pydantic, um, 10 times faster than Marshero and Seattle's and so on. And faster still even than, say, JSON or UJSON. And so maybe it makes sense to use this, turn it into it, its serialization formats, bytes, send the bytes over and then pull it back. I don't know. Might give you a nice yeah, structure. You way. can share byte strings. So you can stick something into pickle or you can use um like uh message spec or something like that to serialize something into a byte string and then receive it on the other end and rehydrate it. Or um, even Pydantic. Like Pydantic's awesome as well. It's just this is yeah. meant to be super fast with a little bit of less behavior, right? Yeah. So this is a, a kind of a design thing. I think people need to consider when they're like, Great, I can run everything in parallel now. Um but you have to kind of unwind and think about how you've designed your application. Like at which point do you fork off the work? Yeah. And how do you set, how do you split the data? Um, mm -hmm. You can't just kind of go into it assuming, oh, we'll just have a pool of workers and we've kind of got this shared area of Right. I'll, I'll pass it a pointer to a, a million. From. Yeah, I'll pass it a pointer to a million entry list and I'll just run with it. Yeah, because, I mean, in any language, you're going to get issues if you, if you do that. Um, even if you've got shared memory and it's easier to read and write to the different spaces, you're going to get issues with locking. And I think it's also important with free threading. If you read the the, the spec or kind of follow what's happening with free free threading, it's not like the gills disappeared. Um, the gills being replaced with other locks. Um, yeah. So there are still there are still going to be locks. You can't just have no locks. <laughs> um if you've got Especially things running threads, in right like it, it it moves some of the reference counting stuff into like well it's it's fast on the default thread the same thread but if it goes to another it has to kick in another more thread safe case that potentially is slower and so on yeah um so yeah, yeah. the really important thing with sub interpreters is that they have their own um well have their own gill so each one has its own lock so they can run fully in parallel just as they could with multi-processing so i feel like the cl a closer comparison with subinterpreters is multiprocessing. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because they, they basically agree. run fully in parallel. If you start four of them and you have four cores, each core is going to be busy doing work. Um, you start them, you give them data, you can interact with them whilst they're running. Um, and then when they're finished, they can close and they can be destroyed and, and cleaned up. Um, so it's it's much closer to multiprocessing. Um, but the the big kind of the big difference is that the overhead both on the, the memory and CPU side of things is much smaller. Um, mm -hmm. Separate processes with multiprocessing are pretty heavyweight. They're, they're big workers. Um, and then the other thing that's pretty significant is um, the time it takes to start one. Um, so starting a process with multiprocessing takes quite a lot of time. Um, and it's significantly, I think it's like 20 or 30 times faster yeah. 
to start a, a subinterpreter. You have a bunch of graphs for it somewhere. There we go. Yeah. So I scrolled past it. There we go. It's not exactly the same, but mm, kind of captures a lot of it there. Uh, so one thing that I think is exciting, Eric, is the interpreter pool, subinterpreter mm-hmm. pool, because a lot of the the difference between the threading and the subinterpreter performance is that startup of the the new arenas and like importing the standard library, all that kind of stuff that still is going to happen. But mm-hmm. once that those things are loaded up in the process, they could be handed work easily, right? And so if you've got a pool of, you know, like say that you have 10 cores, you've got 10 of them just chilling or however many, you know, you've sort of done enough work to like do in parallel, then you could have them laying around and just send like, okay, now I want you to run this function. And now I want you to run this. And that one means go call that API and then process it. And I think you could get the difference between threading and subinterpreters a lot lower by having them kind of reuse basically. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. It's, there's some of the, 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 the key difference I think is mostly that when you have mutable data, uh, whereas with threads, you can share it. So threads can kind of talk to each other through the, the data that they share with each other. Whereas with subinterpreters, there are a lot of restrictions and, and I expect we'll work on that to an extent, but it's also part of the programming model. And like Anthony was saying, if you really want to take advantage of parallelism, you need to think about it. You need to actually yeah. be careful about your data and, and how you're splitting up your work. I think there's going to be design patterns that we come to know yeah. or conventions we come to know. Like, let's suppose I need uh, some calculation and I'm, I'm going to use it in a for loop. You don't run the calculation if it's the same over and over every time through the loop. You run it and then you use the result, right? So in this, you know, a similar thing here would be like, well, if you're going to process a bunch of data and the data comes from, say, a database, don't do the query and hand it all the records. Just tell it, go get that data from the database. That way it's already serialized in the right process and there's not this, this cross you know, serialization to either pickling or whatever mechanism you come up with, right? But like, try to think about when you get the data, can you delay it until it's in the sub-process and, or sub-interpreter rather and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one interesting thing is that PEP 734, uh, I've included memory view as one of the types that's supported. So basically, you can take a memory view of any kind of object that implements the buffer protocol. So like NumPy arrays and, and stuff like that, and pass that memory view through to another interpreter and you can use it and it doesn't make a copy or anything. It actually uses the same underlying data that, that actually gets shared. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so there's, and I think there's even more room for that with uh, other types, but we're starting small. But the the key thing there is that, uh, like you're saying, I mean, the, with with uh, coming up with different models and patterns and libraries, I'm sure they'll come up as people feel out really what's the easiest way to take advantage of these features. I and mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that will apply not just to general free-threaded like no-gill, but also sub-interpreters. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's going to be exciting. So I guess um, I want to move on and talk about working with this in Python and the stuff that you've done, Anthony. But maybe a quick comment from the audience is Jazzy asked, is this built on top of a queue which is built on top of linked lists? Because I'm building this and this my research led me to these data structures. I guess that's the communication across sub-interpreter, cross-interpreter communication. Yeah, with subinterpreters, like in PEP 734, it's a, a queue implements the same interfaces as the queue from the queue module. But there's there's no reason why 
people couldn't implement whatever data structure they want for communicating between subinterpreters, and then that data structure is in charge of of preserving thread safety and and so forth. Yep, excellent. Yeah, it's not a standard queue; it's a, like a concurrent queue or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. All right. So all of this we've been talking about here is you know we, we're looking at this this cool interpreter pool executor stuff that's in draft format, Anthony for three thirteen, and somehow I'm looking at this running Python parallel applications and subinterpreters that you wrote. <laughs> What's going on here? How do you do this magic? Uh, you need to know the secret secret password. Um, so in <laughs> Python, right there, you. in Python three twelve, um, the C API for creating subinterpreters uh, was included, uh, and a, and a lot of the mechanism um, for for creating subinterpreters was included. So um, there's also a uh, in in C Python there's a standard library which I think everybody kind of knows, um, and then there are some like hidden modules uh, which are mostly used for testing. Um, so not all of them get bundled. I think in the distribution, I think the the a lot of the test modules get taken out. Um, but there are some hidden modules you can use for testing, or because a lot of the test suite for C Python has to test C APIs, and nobody really wants to write unit tests in C, so they write the, the tests in Python and then they kind of create this these modules that basically just call the C functions. And so you can get the test coverage and do the testing from Python code. Um, so I guess what was from PEP uh, 6, I can't remember, I look at too many PEPs, 6, 6, Eric will probably know, uh, what is now PEP 734, um, but the oh, Python yeah. interface to create um, sub-interpreters a version of that was included in 3.12. So you can import this module called underscore XX subinterpreters. Um, and it's called underscore XX because it kind of indicates that it's experimental and it's underscore because you probably shouldn't be using it. Um, it's not safe for work to me. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but it provides a good way of um, people actually testing this stuff and seeing what happens if I import my C extension from a subinterpreter? Um, so that's kind of some of what I've been doing is looking at, um, okay, what can we try and do in parallel? Um, and this this blog post, I wanted to try a um, a WSGI or an ASCII web app. Um, and the, the typical pattern that you have at the moment, and I guess how a lot of people would be using parallel code, but without really realizing it, um, is when you deploy a web app for Django, yeah. Flask, or FastAPI, um, you can't have one gil per web server because if you've got one gil per web server, you can only have one user per website, um, which is not great. Um, so the way that most web servers implement this is that they have a pool of workers. Um, Gunicorn um, does that by spawning Python processes and then using the multiprocessing module. So it basically creates multiple Python processes all listening to the same socket. Um, and then when a web request comes in, one of them takes that request. It also then inside that has a thread pool. Um, so even um, basically the thread pool is is better for concurrent code. Um, so GUnicorn normally is used in a multi-worker, multi-thread model. That's how we kind of talk about it. So you'd have the number of workers that you have CPU cores, and then inside that you'd have um, multiple threads. Um, right. So it, 
kind of means you can handle more requests at a, t- at a time. If you've got eight cores, you can handle at least eight requests at a time. However, because most web code can be concurrent on the back end, like you're co- making a database query or you're reading some stuff from a file like that, that doesn't necessarily need to hold the gill. So you can run it concurrently, which is why you have multiple threads. Um, so even if you've only right. got eight CPU cores, you can actually handle 16 or 32 web requests at once um, because some of them will be, will be waiting for the database server to finish running at SQL query or uh, the API that it called to actually reply. Um, so what I wanted to do with this experiment was to look at the multi-worker, multi-thread model for web apps and say, okay, could the worker be a sub-interpreter um, and like, what difference would that make? So instead of using multi-processing for the workers, could I use sub-interpreters for the workers? Um, so even though this the Python interface in 3.12 is experimental, um, basically wanted to adapt Hypercorn, which is a, uh, a web server for ASCII and WSGI apps uh, in Python, uh, wanted to adapt Hypercorn and basically start Hypercorn workers from a sub-interpreter pool, and then seeing if I can run Django, Flask, and Fast API in a sub-interpreter. So a single process, single Python process, but running across multiple cores uh, and listening to web requests and basically running and serving web requests with multiple gills. So that was the yeah, that so was the task. In the article, you said you had started with a G unicorn, and they just made yeah. too many assumptions about the multi-process, uh, the the web workers being truly sub-processes. But Hypercorn was a better fit. You said from Phil. yeah, it was easier to implement this this experiment. In Hypercorn, um, it had like a single entry point um, because when you start an interpreter, when you start a sub-interpreter, you need to import the modules that you want to use. You can't just you can't just say um, run this function over here. You can, but if that function relies on something else that you've imported, you need to import that from the new sub-interpreter. Um, so what I did with this experiment was basically start a sub-interpreter that imports Hypercorn listens to the sockets and then is ready to serve web requests interesting okay and at a, at a minimum you got it working right yeah it it, it did a hello world <laughs> um so we got that got that working so i was yeah pleased with that um and then kind of started doing some more testing of it so you know how many concurrent requests can i make at once how does it handle that what does my cpu core load look like is it distributing it well um And then kind of some of the questions are, you know, how do you share data between the sub-interpreters? So the minimum I had to do was each sub-interpreter needs to know which web socket should I be listening to? So like which network socket, once I've started, what port is it running on? Um, And is it running on multiple ports? And which one should I listen to? So yeah, that's the first thing I had to do. Nice. Yeah, maybe just tell people real quick about just like what are the the commands like at the Python level that you look at in order to create an interpreter, run some code on it and so on. What's this, what's this weird world look like? Eric, do you want to cover that? Yeah, there isn't a whole lot. I mean, the, if we talk about PEP 734, you have an interpreters module with a create function in it that returns you an interpreter object. And then once you have the interpreter object, you'll have uh, you could, it has a function called run uh, or a method. And the interpreter object also has a method called exec. Uh, I'm trying to remember it was uh, exec sync because it's synchronous with the current thread. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas exec 
run will create a new thread for you and run things in that there. So they're kind of different use cases, but it, it's basically the same thing. You have some code currently uh, supports um, uh, just you give it a, a string with all your code on it, like you load it from a file or something. You know, basically it's a script that's going to run in that sub interpreter. Um, alternately, you can give it a function, and as long as that function isn't a closure doesn't have any arguments and stuff like that. So it's just like really basic, basically a script, right? Um, if you got something like that, uh, you can also pass that through and then it runs it. And that's just about it. If you want to get some results back, you're going to have to manually pass them back kind of like you do with threads. But that's yeah. something people already understand pretty well. Right, and create one of those channels and then yep. you just wait for it to exit and then read from the channel and something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's a way to say things like, just run and there's also a way to say create an interpreter and then you could use the interpreter to do things and that lets you only pay the process like startup cost once right yeah yeah and you can also you can call that the the run multiple times and each time it kind of adds on to what ran before so if you run some code that that modifies things or imports some modules and that sort of thing those will still be there the next time you run some code in that interpreter, which is nice because then if you've got some startup stuff that you need to do one time, you can do that ahead of time right after you create the interpreter. But then in kind of your nice. loop in your worker, then you run again and all that stuff is ready to go. Oh, that's interesting because when I think about, say, my web apps, a lot of them talk to MongoDB and use Beanie and you go to Beanie and you tell it to like create a connection or um, a MongoDB client pool and it does all that stuff and then you just ambiently talk to it like go to that you know kind of like Django or whatever right go to the that class and do a query on it you could run that startup code like once potentially and have that pool just hanging around for subsequent work mm -hmm. nice all right uh let's see some more stuff so um you said you got it working pretty well anthony and you said one of the challenges was trying to get it to shut down right mm. yeah yeah so in python when you start a python process you can press control c um to quit which is a keyboard interrupt um that kind of sends the interrupt in that process um all of these web servers have got like a mechanism for cleanly shutting down because you don't want to just if you press Control c you don't want to just terminate the processes um because when you write a an ASCII app in particular you can have like events that you can do so people who've done fast api probably know the like the on event um decorator that you can put and say when my app starts up, create a database connection pool, and when it shuts down, then go and clean up all this stuff. So um, if the web servers decided to shut down for whatever reason, whether you've pressed Control C or it just decided to close for whatever reason, um, it needs to tell all the workers to shut down cleanly. Um, so signals, uh, like the signals module, um, doesn't work between sub-interpreters because it kind of, it sits in the interpreter state from what i understand um so what i did was basically use a channel so that the the main worker like the coordinator when that had a shutdown request it would send a message to all of the sub interpreters to say okay can you stop now um and then it would kick off um a job basically tell hypercorn in this case to shut down cleanly call any shutdown functions that you might have um, and then log a message to say that it's shutting down as well. Because the other thing is with web servers, this, if it just terminated immediately um, and then you looked at your logs, 
and you were like, okay, why did the website suddenly stop working? And there was no log entries. And it, it just went from <laughs> I'm handling requests to just, you know, absolute silence. Um, that also wouldn't be very helpful. So it needs to write log messages. It needs to call like shutdown functions and stuff. Um, right. So what I did was, um, and this is, I guess, where it's kind of a bit of a turtles all the way down, but inside the subinterpreter, I start another thread. Um, because if you have a polar which listens to a signal on a channel, that's a blocking operation. Um, so, you know, at the, at the bottom of my subinterpreter code, I've got, okay, run hypercorn. Um, so it's going to run, it's going to listen to sockets, serve web requests. But I need to also be able to run concurrently in the subinterpreter a loop which listens to the communication channel and sees if a um if a shutdown request has been sent um so this is kind of a maybe an implementation detail of how interpreters work in in python but uh, interpreters have threads as well so you can start threads inside interpreters um so similar to what i said with g unicorn and, and hypercorn how you've got multi-worker multi-thread like each worker has its own threads um in python interpreters have the threads so you can start a subinterpreter and then inside that subinterpreter you can also start multiple threads um and you can do coroutines and, and all that kind of stuff as well um so basically what i did is is to start a subinterpreter which also starts a thread and that thread listens to the communication channel and then waits for a shutdown request right and tell, tells uh hypercorn all right you're done we're, we're out of yep. here yeah okay interesting here's a interesting question from the audience from chris well it says when you we talked about the global kind of startup, like if you run that once, it'll already be set. And, you know, does that make code somewhat non-deterministic in the sub-interpreter? I mean, if you explicitly work with it, no. But if you're doing the pool, like, which one do you get? Is it initialized or not? Eric, do you have an idea of like a startup function that runs in the interpreter pool executor type thing? Or is it just they get doled out and they run what they run? Uh, you With uh with concurrent not futures, it's already kind of a, a pattern. You have an initialized function that you can call that'll do the right thing, and then uh, and then you have your work that actually your your task that the worker is actually running. Um, yeah. So with the uh, I, I I don't know I I wouldn't say it's non deterministic unless you have no control over. It. I mean, it's if you want to make sure that state progresses in an expected way, then you're going to run your own subinterpreters, right? But if you have no control over the subinterpreters, you're just like handing off to some library that's using subinterpreters, I, I would think it, it'd be somewhat um, not quite so important about whether it's deterministic or not. I mean, it, each each uh, time it runs, it, there are a variety of things, you know, things, the whole thing could be kind of reset or uh, or you could make sure that Anything that runs it, any part of your code that runs is um, careful to keep its state self-contained and, and therefore, you know, you preserve determinist yeah. behavior yeah, that way. One I do a lot is I'll write code that'll say, you know, if this is already initialized, don't do it again. So if I talked about like the database connection thing. If somebody were to call it twice, it'll say, well, looks like the connection's already not none, so we're good. <laughs> Right, you could just always run the startup code with one of these like short circuit things that says, "Hey, it looks like on this interpreter, this is already done. We're good." But you know, yeah. that would probably handle a good chunk of it right there. Yeah. But we're back to this thing that Anthony said, right? Like we're gonna learn some new programming patterns potentially. Yeah, yeah. quite interesting. So we talked at the beginning 
about how subinterpreters have their own memory and their own module loads and all those kinds of things. And that might be potentially interesting for isolation. Also kind of tying back to Chris's comment here, this isolation is pretty interesting for um, testing, right, Anthony? Like mm. PyTest? <laughs> so another thing you've been up to is working with trying to run PyTest sessions in subinterpreters. Tell people about that. Yeah, um, so I started off with a web worker. Um, one of the things I hit with a web worker was that I couldn't start Django applications um, and realized the reason was the so the, the date time module. So the, C, uh, the Python standard library, uh, some of the modules are implemented in Python, some of them are implemented in C, uh, some of them are a combination of both. Um, so some modules you import in the standard library have like a C part that's been implemented in C for performance reasons typically or because it needs some special operating system API that you can't access from Python. Um, and then the, the front end is Python. Um, so there is a, a list basically of um, standard library modules that are written in C that have some sort of global state. Um, and then the, the core developers have been going down that list and fixing them up so that they can be imported from a subinterpreter um, or just marking them as not compatible with subinterpreters. Um, one such example was the read line module that, um, that Eric and I were kind of working on last week and the week before. Um, re read line is used for, I guess, listening to like user input. So if you run the input built in, um, like read line is one of the utilities it uses to listen to keyboard input. Um, if you start, let's say you started five subinterpreters at the same time and all of them did a read line listen for input, like what would you expect the behavior to be? Um, which when you type <laughs> in the keyboard, which, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wh where would you expect the letters to come out? So it kind of poses an interesting question. Um, so re read line is, is not compatible with subinterpreters. Um, but we discovered like it was actually sharing a global state. So when it initialized, it would, in, it would install like a callback, um, and what that meant was that even though it said it's not compatible, if you started multiple sub-interpreters that imported readline, it would crash Python itself. Um, the datetime module is another one that's um, that needs fixing. Um, it installs a bunch of global state. Um, so yeah, datetime was a, was another one. So what I wanted to do is to try and test some other C extensions um, that I had and just basically write a, a PyTest uh, extension a PyTest plugin, I guess, which um, you've got an existing PyTest suite, but you want to run all of that in a subinterpreter. Uh, and the goal of this is really that um, you're developing a C extension, you've written a test suite already for PyTest, um, and you want to run that inside a subinterpreter. Um, so I'm looking at this from a couple of different angles, but uh, I want to really try and use subinterpreters in, in other ways, import some C extensions that have never even considered the idea of subinterpreters and just see how they respond to it. Um, like readline was a good example. Like I think it was a this won't this won't work, but the fact that it crashed is, <laughs> what, is bad. How, how is it going to crash? Right? Like what's happening there? Yeah. So it should have it it should have kind of just said this is not compatible, and that's kind of uncovered a. Um, and this is all super experimental as well. So like this is not um, you know you've you've had to import the underscore xx module to even try this um so yeah there's there's um read line date time was another one um and so i put this sort of pytest extension together so that i could run some existing test suites inside subinterpreters 
Um, and then the next thing that I looked at doing was um, C Python has a huge test suite. Um, so basically, how all of Python itself is tested, um, the parser, the um, the compiler, the evaluation loop, all of the standard library modules have got pretty good test coverage. So like when you compile Python from source or you make changes on GitHub, like it runs the test suite to make sure that your changes didn't break anything. Um, now, the, the next thing I kind of wanted to look at was, okay, can we, to try and kind of get ahead of the curve really on um, sub-interpreter adoption. So in 3.13, when PEP 7.3.4 lands, um, can we try and test all of the standard library inside a sub-interpreter and see if it has any other weird behaviors. Um, and this test will probably apply to uh, free threading as well, to be honest, because I think um, any, anything that you're, you're doing like this, you're importing these C extensions, which always assume that there was a big gill in place. Um, if you take away that assumption, then you get these strange behaviors. Um, so yeah, the next thing I've been working on is basically running the C Python test suite inside sub-interpreters and then seeing um, what kind of weird behaviors pop up. I think it's a great idea because obviously CPython is going to need to run code in a sub-interpreter, run our code, right? So it, at a minimum, the framework, the interpreter, all the runtime bits, that should hang together, right? Yeah. There are some modules that it doesn't make sense to run in sub-interpreters. Readline was an example. Um, some TK yeah. interpreter, maybe? Yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, that maybe so, not, actually. I don't know. Yeah, if, you, if you think about, like, uh, if you got... It, when you're doing GUI programming, right, you're going to have a kind of your your uh, core stuff running the main thread, right? And then you hand off, you, you may have subthreads doing some other work, but the, the core of the application, think of it as running in the main thread. I, yeah, I think absolutely. of applications in that way. And there's certain things that you do in Python, standard library modules that really only make sense with that, that main thread. So supporting those in sub-interpreters isn't quite as... It's meaningful. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember all the details, but I feel like there's some parts of Windows itself, some UI frameworks there that required that you access them on the main program thread, not mm -hmm. on some background thread as well, because it would freak things out. So yeah, it seems same, like not same, unreasonable. Yeah, same is true. Like the signal module, if I remember right, add exit, uh, a few others. Excellent. All right. Well, I guess let's, we're getting short on time. Let's wrap it up with this. So the the big thing to keep an eye on really here is PEP seven three four because that's when this would land. This would, you're no longer with the underscore xx sub interpreter. You're yep. just or you're just working with the interpreters sub module. Yeah, three thirteen. So, yeah, so it, right now it's in draft. Like, what's it looking like? If it'll be in three thirteen, it'll be in three thirteen alpha something, some beta something. Like, when is this going to start looking like a thing that is is ready for people to play with? So I, yes. th yeah, th this PEP, I, I went through and, and did a, a massive cleanup of PEP 554, which is why I made a new PEP for it. And uh, simplified a lot of things, clarified a lot of points, had lots of good feedback from people and ended up with what I think is a good API, but it was a little different in some ways. So I've had the implementation for PEP 554 mostly done and ready to go for years. And so it was a matter, it's been a matter of now that I have this, this uh, updated pep up, going back to the implementation, tweaking it to match, and then making sure everything still feels right. Uh, try and use it in a few cases. And if everything looks good, then go ahead 
and uh, I'll start a discussion on that. I'm hoping within the next week or two to start up the, a round of discussion about this PEP, and hopefully uh, we won't have a whole lot of back and forth so I can get this over to the steering councils in the near future. Well, uh, the hard work has been done already, right? The, yeah. the C yeah. layer is there and it's accepted and it's in there. Now it's just a matter of what's the right way to look at it from Python, right? And one one thing to keep in mind that is that I'm planning on uh, backporting the module to Python 3.12, just so that we have a printer per gallon 3.12, so it'd be nice if people could really take advantage of it. So, I see. So for that one, we'd have to pip install it, or would it be yep. added as? Yeah, yeah. pip install. Okay. okay. I probably won't support before 3.12. I mean, subinterpreters have been around for decades, but only for the CAPI. But that said, I, I, I doubt I'll uh, backport this module past 3.12. So just 3.12 and up. And that's more than I expected anyway, so that's pretty cool. All right, final thoughts, you guys. What do you want to tell people about this stuff? Uh, personally, I'm, I'm excited for where everything's going. I, it's taken a while, but I think we're getting to a good place. The, it's interesting with all the discussion about no-gill, it's easy to think, oh, then why do we need sub-interpreters? Or, or if we have sub-interpreters, why do we need no-gill? But they're kind of different yeah. needs that they're meeting. The most interesting thing for me is that um, what's good for no-gill is good for sub-interpreters and vice versa. That no-gill probably really wouldn't be possible without a lot of the work that we've done to make a per interpreter guild possible. So um, I think that's one of the neat things that the future is looking bright for Python multi-core. And I, I'm excited to see where people go with all of these things that we're adding. Hey, when's the uh, sub interpreters programming design patterns book coming out? <laughs> um, yeah, my, <laughs> my, my thoughts are, I will, oh, there's a, Subinterpreters are mentioned in my book actually when it was like Python three nine I think um um because it was possible then but it's changed quite a lot since um they I guess they kind of some thoughts to leave people with I think if you're a maintainer of a, a Python package or a C extension module in a Python package um there's going to be a lot more exotic scenarios for you to test coming in the next year or so. <laughs> Um, and some of those uncover things that you might've done or just kind of relied on the gill with global state, uh, where that's not really, um, desirable anymore and you're going to get bugs down the line. Um, so I think with any of that stuff as a package maintainer, you want to test as many scenarios as you can so that you can catch bugs and fix them before your users find them. Um, so if you are a package maintainer, there's definitely some things that you can start to look at now to test, um, in that's available in 312, uh, 3.13 alpha 2 is at least probably the one I've tried, to be honest. Um, and uh, if you're a developer, not necessarily a maintainer, um, then I think this is a good time to start reading up on um, like parallel programming and how you need to design um, parallel programs. Um, and that those kind of concepts are the same across all languages and you know, Python would be no different. We just have different mechanisms for starting parallel work and joining it back together. Um, but if you're interested in this and you want to run more code in parallel, and um, there's definitely some stuff uh, to read and some stuff to learn about in terms of, um, you know, uh, signals, pipes, queues, um, sharing data, how you have locks and where you should put them, um, how deadlocks can occur, 
um, things like that. So all of that stuff is the same in Python as, as anywhere else. We just have different mechanisms for, for doing it. All right. Well, people have some uh, research work. And I guess a really, really quick final question, Eric, and then we'll wrap this up. Following up on what Anthony said, like test your stuff, make sure it works in a subinterpreter. If for some reason you're like, my code will not work in a subinterpreter and I'm not ready yet, is there a way to determine that your code is being run in a subinterpreter rather than regularly from your Python code? Yeah, if you have a, an extension module that supports subinterpreters, then you will have updated your module to use what's called multi phase init. And uh, there, that's something that shouldn't be too hard to look up. I think I, I talked about it in the PEP. Um, if you implement multi phase init, then you've already done most of the work to support a sub interpreter. The, um, if, if you haven't, then your module can't be imported in a sub interpreter. It'll actually fail with an import error if you try and import it in a sub interpreter or, or at least a sub interpreter that has uh, its own gil. There are ways to create sub interpreters that still share a gil and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you, you just won't be able to import it at all. So like the readline module uh, can't be imported in subinterpreters. Uh, the the issue that Anthony ran into is kind of a, a subtle uh, side effect of the check that we're doing. So, um, <laughs> but really it boils down to if you don't implement multi-phase init, then you won't be able to import the module. It'll You'll just get an importer. So that's, I mean, it makes it kind all of right. straightforward. Yeah, sounds good. More opt-in than opt-out. Yep. Right on. All right, guys. Thank you both for coming back on the show and awesome work. This is looking close Thanks. to the finish line and exciting. Thanks, Michael. Yep. See y'all. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Are you ready to level up your Python career? And could you use a little bit of personal and individualized guidance to do so? Check out the PyBytes Python Developer Mindset program at talkpython.fm slash pdm. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days, if you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.